listeners, and welcome back to Culture Swine, Defining Personhood with Ancillary Justice. Today we are covering chapters 8 through 11. Oh good, I read the right ones. Yeah. So, start off. Well, uh, Sorry, go ahead. When we last abandoned our... When we last abandoned the protagonist, we had learned more about the plan to kill Anna Andermienai, or we had learned about the plan to kill Anna Andermienai, and we're learning some details from the protagonist's past that apparently probably go into the details of that. Mm-hmm. And also in the flashback sections, we are seeing a brewing conspiracy among the ranks of the Tanmond and the and brewing potential bad stuff going on with guns being mysteriously found stashed somewhere in what the Orsians recognize to be a common ploy of their oppressors, justifying cause for people to be murdered or persecuted or whatever for theoretically owning guns they're not supposed to have. Yeah. And when it happens during Anna Ander's visit, they, Anna Ander responds by having everyone on both sides who's present killed. Well, no. What happens in Chapter 8 is that, like, there's a big terrifying thing that happens, and then communications go down, and all the segments of one esque lose contact with each other, and they stop being sort of a hive mind for a while because they lose access to the Justice of Torn proper, then the Tanmen all run down to the lower city, apparently being terrified because there was a murder up in the upper city. The, the, the niece that got referenced in the previous chapters seems to have been killed, and the Tanmen blame the Orsians. Then Orn brings the Tanmen into the temple to, like, prevent conflict and prevent any kind of, you know, fearful whatever might happen. And then... Orn and the Tanmen go both get a chance to plead their case to Anander Miadnai, where the, the Tanmen basically say, "Oh yeah, this just fits into a broader pattern. The Orsians hate us. They think they blame everything on us. Of course, they would try to kill us. They they just want us all to be destroyed. You need to take action against them." And Orn says, "That doesn't really add up." We have this evidence. We know that what they've said about what happened with the niece isn't real. We know that the guns weren't stashed there by the Orsians, that it was like a more complicated plot. Like what, what the Tanmen are telling you is misleading. And Andrew Miadnai, to absolutely everyone's surprise, says, okay, then kill all the Tanmen. Kill all the Tanmen that are here in this temple. And everyone thinks, well, there's no need to do that. That's completely crazy. These people are citizens, and even if we think there's maybe something going on, it doesn't really suggest that these people are guilty. But Anandromiadnai insists, and eventually Orn orders Esk to carry out the order, and Esk carries out the order, even though she is left pondering how strange this whole situation is. So the Orsians actually make it out pretty much okay, um... Uh, right. Aside from Except for... having all these weird accusations, but the the Tanmen get massacred. Right, yes. Just been a day or two since I read, but yes, you're correct. Mm-hmm. That being said, that scene is confusing on a number of levels. One of them, Jen Shinnan clearly doesn't expect any of that and seems to... So that, uh, assuming that Anander isn't completely unreasonable... Mm-hmm. It sounds like this is retribution for attempting to manipulate him against On. Who who is him here? Uh, Anander. Any reason for him? Because I'm pretty sure the text does use she, like it uses she for uh, everybody. Yes, for I thought that's projection on my part. Okay. I don't believe that there's any reason to specify male, but the name sounds male. Well, there's not none. There is in this the head priest is used for the like rather than priestess and lord is used rather than lady like we talked about. So like these titles do seem to be the masculine titles rather than feminine ones. But like, you know, I think probably like we talked about last episode, best to just go with the convention that's being used and use she for everybody. Yeah, but so that that's well. That this has provided us with a lot of foster for linguistic discussion, mm-hmm. as I'm pretty sure I've mentioned already in this series. All of the natural languages, or at least all the ones that I've learned, 
that where that have grammatical gender like titles that are sensitive to it or nouns that are sensitive to it the it, when, when you're not specifying a gender the males usually used so speaking of that there was a long discussion a long set of discussions were had about a number of things after the first episode was published and we got a ton of feedback specifically about that comment you made about English not being an especially gendered language and wondering if other languages have other particular properties. Because a lot of people pointed out the Hebrew. I know someone in the Raj fan discord, which you connected me to after those discussions began, mentioned Hausa, which I should have remembered because I have some prior exposure to it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was... Sorry, I've, I've looked up the examples, and um, a language with gendered second-person pronouns. Hebrew has gendered second-person pronouns. Hmm. That's... Yeah, that was... And I... I Then Arabic was pointed out to me as well in that, and I studied it many years ago, but evidently haven't retained enough of it to remember that. Mm-hmm. So, yes, thank you to the Raj Fan Discord for answering that question. Mm-hmm. And... Just because it was pointed out so many times as being odd, could you clarify what specifically you meant by saying that English is not a, a, an especially gendered language? Because I, 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 many questions were asked, and I'm pretty sure what you were saying was just that, like, in terms of the number of words that are different, it's a lot less than most Romance languages. Yeah, Engl so English nouns, gr grammatical gender is a special case of declension. And mm -hmm. English nouns, like proper nouns, or the only nouns in English that decline for anything are the pronouns, and they don't have, I mean, those are gendered, but they're also the only nouns that change, like he versus him, based on their the, the pronoun's case in the sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, English is not especially gendered at the grammatical level. There are, of course, a lot of embedded assumptions when you're speaking English, although even because it's less, it's done less at the grammatical level, those are, all, so those are less obvious if you don't you know, live in the culture that has them. Yeah, mm -hmm. English has plenty of gender, but there are like two nouns, I think I mentioned, in all of it, or two words in English I know of that change spelling with gen to imply gender. Yeah, like blonde, I think you mentioned. Blonde and fiancé. Mm-hmm. And that fiancé um, doesn't really count because it's from French. Yeah, there, there were a couple of other things that were talked about in those discussions on the server, largely about our discussions about gender and our speculation about what might be going on in the Rajai. Someone pointed out that if there was no, if there was no, like, sociological gender, right? If you don't, if you're in a culture that isn't, doing any gender stuff in the way that the the Rajai isn't, probably you would expect that, like, medical biological distinctions would just get more specific about what's going on, rather than using sex as a distinguisher. Like, there are multiple meaningful things that are wrapped up into those categories that could be separate and it's not that uncommon that they're separate. So we had said, like, they might still use that kind of distinction. And, you know, while it is still a suggestive, correlative kind of category, it's, you know, specifically in a medical context, probably they would bother being a lot more specific, especially if they're not able to make a lot of guesses based on gender. Right. And that there clearly are customs across the various societies in this in this setting that are impacted by the the linguistic variations there raj mm -hmm. has a gender neutral language and as far as we can tell no gender roles yeah we also did get people saying like why would we assume that a language that is an unknown amount of time in the future like Rajai, would be similar to modern languages right like why would it be the same why would we assume it's the same and i i think what we're what we're getting at there is more trying to talk about languages generally and constructed languages in particular, especially because we've had a lot of stuff to say about like Moraine, for example, and how it 
is or isn't like real languages and how how you can make those comparisons and how if it's trying to be unusual that should be intentional right yes anyway where were we chapter eight yeah so the the that scene ends with anander having all of the tan mint killed and saying well that's the last trouble we'll have from the tan mint yeah, which is, you know, obviously remarkably cruel, you know? It's Anander... Everyone at the time, and continuing throughout this, notes this as, like, the Ragi don't generally do shit like this, because these people were citizens and are guaranteed a right to, like, due process, among other things. And also, there was just no need. You didn't... You didn't get anything out of doing this. They weren't presenting a clear and present danger. They weren't, like, fighting you. They weren't even your political enemies or anything like that. They were just And they were already people. surrounded by, by effectively soldiers in the form of one-esque. Yeah, or even if it's not soldiers, like... I think it would be the same if it was, like, police, but, like, they were ridiculously under control. The situation was completely not out of hand. Yeah. Nobody was going anywhere. Nobody was being violent yet. The storm, yeah. the everyone taking shelter from what doesn't sound like it was actually a storm. Yeah, there was no issue there. Yeah, no, it, it's not that there was... Because they, they actively make sure in a previous chapter that the storm shutters are ready to be shut. Not because it's the rainy season, because it isn't, but because that can act as a means of, like like crowd control right so that people can't move about freely and asks various segments as well as the other soldiers are making sure that people are told to stay in their houses and not like come come out and cause trouble and that basically just seems to be working it seems like the only bad thing that happened was this crowd of scared people came around and the niece died, you know? Yeah. That's that's all that actually happened here. And it wasn't discovered until the end that she had in fact been murdered, but there was absolutely no reason to believe that the Orzeans were responsible. Yeah. And among the many, many questions left at the end of this, such as are, you know, why did Anna Anderman and I do this? Why was Anna Anderman and I here to facilitate this happening? Why did she come in person? Why did she come in person now are both questions. But also, who set the jamming device? We still don't know who put that gun there or those that stash of guns there. We Since it doesn't seem like the Orsians did it, we don't know who killed that, that the, the niece. We don't know why exactly they filed a false report about what happened with the niece. So given... This whole situation just needs a lot of investigation. Yeah. I So the, my best guess right now, given the information that's available in the two chapters on this planet, is that this had been somehow – the, the Tanmind – Jen Shinnan seems to feel genuinely betrayed. One Ask emphasizes that mm -hmm. repeatedly. So – Oh, and just because I don't think we reminded everybody, Jin Sinan is the, the Tanmind leader that – What's her name? Orn went and had dinner with in a previous chapter. Yeah, the one who talked about the how aunt. awful the, the Orsians generally are. Yeah. So if I had to guess, based on what else is said about Raj hierarchy, this is maybe not, perhaps not Anander, but maybe Anander, specifically running a long con against the Tanmind, thinking they had connivance up to this point, and then crushing them. But, like, this situation is super shady, right? Like, when this comes out, everyone is going to be like, why the hell did you kill a bunch of citizens? If the goal was we need to manufacture a situation where we can, like, kill or imprison all the Tanmind, it wasn't a very good job of doing that. And, like, you know, maybe this is a story about a plan that... They attempted, and then it basically failed, and then because they had already bought in on it, they executed it even though it didn't work the way it was supposed to, and so it ended up looking super weird. Maybe that's what's going on, right? Because maybe the plan is you stash those guns, you plant that seed of doubt in Lieutenant Orn's mind, and then when that killing happens... 
when when the niece gets killed, now you have a justification to oppress the Orsians again, right? That's but then Orn trusts the the Orsians and the Orsians trust her, so she gets the information about the guns and she doesn't buy the information about the niece. And so because of that, you now have way too many details that point to the fact that the Orsians aren't actually guilty, so you just kill all the Tanmen to cover your tracks? But that doesn't really make sense to me either. Or the... So, Anna Ander doesn't... Important thing, Oneask mentions that Oneask has been watching the entire city until like until the communications went down, Oneask had view through dozens of bodies and the scanners. And yeah. both the harassment of the niece and the murder of the niece by an Orsian were things that Oneask was in a position to confidently conclude had never even slightly happened. And Anna Ander doesn't yeah. seem to doubt that at all. Yeah. So that that lends credence to my this is retribution for trying to manipulate me hypothesis. Maybe. Though also there's a bunch of things where uh esks esks like surveillance capabilities seem to be in doubt a little bit because Esk never saw the incident that was supposed to have happened in you know, with with the niece, and she never saw who put the guns there, and she didn't see anything about who actually did the murder, right? And now we see the existence of a communications jammer. So maybe what's going on here is an attempt to muddy whether Esk herself can be seen as a reliable source, or maybe this... Maybe she is actually an unreliable source and someone is fucking with her memories or perceptions, or maybe maybe this is an attempt to make other people doubt Or this is a in fact, in general, politics I... thing against Ahn's house, because the whole reason that they concluded high-level Radchai interference must have been involved in the first place is that there are certain people that Oneesk would not be able to track, and those are all high-ranking Radchai. Yeah. I mean— just just speaking generally, I think what's going on here is actually this is about one-esque and it's not and like all the Orn, you know, Orn and Skyat talk about this in a later chapter and speculate, oh, yeah, maybe it's someone trying to get to you, Orn. I think this is them, you know, failing to think that a ship could actually be central to the story because that's how they view these things culturally. They're viewing ships and ship mines and ancillaries and so forth kind of as NPCs, right? But what's actually going on is this was some kind of test for Esk or it was to make people doubt Esk so that Esk could be decommissioned. You know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this in the previous episode. Yeah. Also, I just like thematically that the execution of the Tanmend is deliberately framed as the, like, using the same words to, to frame it as what the head priest believed about the Rajai coming to pass. These people are citizens, they're on the right side of the line that means they should be treated with respect and dignity, but anyone who thought that citizenship meant an end to tyranny has misjudged the Rajai, because as soon as the as soon as the chips are down, they are immediately executed. Point. And well And with that, shall we get into chapter nine? I would only add one ask is very, very ancient and we can or Justice of Torin is extremely ancient, and this seems to be borderline unprecedented. So I was going to say, well, this has to happen somewhat regularly in a civilization as brutal as the Raj, but also the Raj assimilates so vigorously that that could only probably happen in the generation or two after an annexation. So I don't actually... Why... Why do you say that that the Justice of Torin is, like, rare or exceptional? No, the Justice of Torin is ancient, and the event is implied to be without precedent. The, the mass execution. Oh, I see. Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm totally with you then. I thought you were saying that Justice of Torin being as old as it was, was unprecedented. And that I'm not sure we have evidence of, though we do hear that people who served on the campaign against the Garcidae are very rare, which implies that 
some combination of it was a very long time ago and people who served on that campaign, something happened to all those guys. Yes. Which is another reason why I think, by the way, that that this was a specific thing against the Justice of Torrin, right? Trying to get rid of the Justice of Torrin. Because something has gotten rid of every other source of living memory about the Garcidae incident. Point. And we've had it established now, we get established later, and it might have been established already, that the Persger are somehow involved with the Garcidae being able to hurt the ranch at all. But And that hmm. definitely contextualizes humanity's subsequent relations with the Persger. You mean the Presker? I'm pretty sure it's P E R S. Or maybe is it It's okay, the 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 the, the audiobook says it like Presca. Let me like rhymes with Fresca. Let me scroll back. It's in chapter I know that comes up in chapter eleven. Presger definitely sounds less weird, but Presger. Yes, you're right. I don't know why I've been saying Persger. Okay. Okay, I retroactively correct myself <laughs> on that. All of that is wrong. I will be saying it right as Presger from now on. So anyway, on to chapter nine. We cut back to the present. Ask is living with Stragan. Stragan is performing her usual living. doctor duties. Staying. She's living. I, I I think... They can't have been here that long. Are you disputing that... Oh, okay. You're just saying that she's not having like long-term yes. habitation. I'm not clear on how the how what the timeline is. It seemed to me like she could have been here for days or weeks. <coughs> it seems implausible to me that Strigan would have let the the uh, persuasion attempt go on this long. I think we're talking less than a week. I think Esk and Strigan ended up in something of a détente, and then Strigan got distracted with her work. That's possible. To it, I, I don't get the vibe uh, that this has been longer than a couple days, though. Fair enough. So anyway, she's with Strigan. Strigan is performing her usual doctor duties. Strigan gets to talking about her feelings of hatred and disdain toward ancillaries, but also that she kind of has some empathy for the people who got turned into ancillaries in a way that ended up coming off like a pretty clear parallel for transphobia and esque responds with like you know a, a likewise familiar also made me think of it kind of frustration and refusal to grant any of stragan's premises because stragan is like you know i bet i could figure out a way to sort of crack open your head as it were and figure out how to get the person who you once were before you were an ancillary out of your head and ask is like that would kill the person that i am and also the person that this body used to belong to is dead so fuck no yeah it was you um, can kill me you mean you can destroy my sense of self and replace it with one you approve of yeah there's a lot of esque like jabbing Strigan about how Strigan's ideology w wants to control people for their own good a lot. There's a similar kind of line where Strigan is talking about Cyverdan, who of course was addicted to Kef, and she asks like, "How did the Ragi deal with addicts or something like that?" And asks, um, "There aren't any because they get forcibly rehab." Yes, but Strigan, but like. She also says at one point, sorry, I'm trying to find the quote. I'm pretty sure I wrote it down. Like, does it trouble you that the Ragi are free to destroy themselves or, not or something like that? Or not free to destroy themselves. Right. So it's the it's the inverse in that case. But yeah, there's a lot of her say, like implicitly saying, I don't need to meet with your approval I don't care whether you think that I'm a valid type of person, Strigan, you know, that kind of thing. So eventually, Aska decides that the only way she can get Strigan to give her the gun is to tell the Strigan the truth about why she wants it and why she wants to kill Anander Madnai, and she resolves to do that as the chapter comes to an end. Yes. And, well, we've gone over everything that I found particularly interesting about this section. It's useful establishment. There isn't there a were... lot of meta that I have to say that we didn't. There are a couple more things. We learn a little about Cyberdun's backstory, how she managed to survive after that explosion. We learned that her house, House Vindai, was absorbed by House Gare and is effectively now gone. We learn that 
We learn a little bit about how the Ragi culture thinks about mental health and aptitude, right? Yeah. Because they they have you take aptitude tests so that you can be placed into the appropriate, like, job, basically. And Stradan is worried about retaking the aptitudes, basically because she thinks... Sorry, not Stradan. Cyberdan is worried about retaking the aptitudes because she worries about how it will reflect on her and on her family if she fails. And this introduces the Ragi concept of steadiness. Steadiness being the ability to handle the pressures of your work without cracking or without needing medical attention or re-education for your psychological issues. And so in the popular understanding of the Ragi, steadiness separates those who are worthy of high social positions from those who aren't. Though in practice, uh, Esk is quick to point out that people of noble birth and social privilege find socially convenient excuses to take breaks from their work by, like, going to monasteries or whatever. But poorer and less advantaged people don't have access to those mechanisms of getting help, and so they are seen as unsteady and Yes, unhealthy. and even the suggestion of unsteadiness is extremely unpleasant to Cybarden. Yeah. Another interesting thing, Strigan asks if Esk was a singer or music lover before she was an ancillary, and Esk says definitively that she wasn't. Uh, Strigan says Esk's body is gownish and was thus likely made into an ancillary a few hundred years ago, so that's an answer to a question you had about where this body specifically came from. We now know that it was from the Garcidae. Yeah. But the, the singer thing is interesting, right? Because it implies that singing is a habit that the all, the all of the segments had to pick up from each other. Because we've confirmed that it's not something the Justice of Torin made them do, and we've also confirmed that it's not something that they had before they were made into ancillaries, which only leaves that they could have picked it up from each yes. other. And that is itself interesting, that... That suggests things about Leckie's view of AI psychology. Well, no, because the ancillaries aren't AIs. But they're, well, I guess they are, they are in, they're independent minds to some extent, albeit networked via Justice of Torin. Yeah. The degree of individuality is explicitly pretty limited. Yeah, because we see, no, but we see in the previous chapter, right, that we see all of them moving independently and doing stuff independently when completely cut off from the Justice of Torin and each other, right? They have basically the same goals and basically the same ability to do stuff, maybe a little decreased ability to do stuff, but like still a human level of ability to do stuff when disconnected from the JOT and from each other, which implies to me that they all have an individual intelligence. It just happens to be connected to this other thing. And the discussion in this chapter says that the process of being made into an ancillary completely destroys whatever mind you had before. Like, it destroys your prior personality. But I think they probably just do have a personality that gets put into them after that. And after the process to be made into an ancillary is done, they still have intelligence, they still have emotions, and they still have some autonomy, even if the JOT has the ability to override it, which means they they can develop, you know, habits and culture and stuff, such as a punch-up for singing. Yeah, the... the uh, speaking of feelings, one-esque notes in, in yet another, like, in what is becoming a, a, a trend that she's still unsure why she cares about Cyberden at all or why she's helping her. Well, at least it's acknowledged. I'm kind of lost on that point myself. Oh, before I forget to mention it again... It was pointed out to me by the same Rajfan Discord where the gendered language discussion occurred that the drug is in fact called Kef. I can't remember not pronouncing it that way, but if I said Kef with my teeth or Ket, which somewhat resembles the name of a real drug, those were not intentional and it is in fact called Kef. But I remember bringing up only having encountered Indeed. that syllable as a letter from the Gorian alphabet, so... Hmm... I can't remember ever having said it that way. It's possible that someone on the Discord misheard, but I'm... In any case, it is Kef, and I will only refer to it... I don't know. I, I am I am very happy to assume that I've mispronounced things, because yeah, it happens I'm usually, all the time. I, I've got at least some uh, habit of precision about that. Fair enough. So anyway, chapter 10. Oh god, I just um, realized. 
we're hoping back that my Bluetooth can't pick up the echoes. Yes. I didn't hear it when we, when we were testing before recording, uh, but my apartment where I live now has a concrete floor and I can't cover nearly all of it with what's available. So there is a bit of echoing going on that happens when I speak above the volume that I'm roughly the volume that I'm currently doing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll just see. In any case, one ask. So cha chapter 10, Orn deals with the trauma of having done such a horrible thing. Skyat tries to comfort her by offering a theory which explains why everything turned out this way. Basically that Orn's being punished by her Ragi superiors <laughs> for being kind to the Orsians and upsetting the local hierarchy and upsetting like the Ragi way of taking over a planet, which is largely work with the local hierarchy and go to the people on top and make them you know, advantaged by working for you. Everyone think that, that thinks this kind of explains it. Like, it, it it adds up, but it doesn't explain all the details. Meanwhile, the head priestess discusses her disgust and dismay over this whole situation to Esk, and this leads Esk to muse philosophically about whether whether Orn could have done anything to prevent this tragedy, and also whether the individual ancillary unit that was in the room could have done anything to prevent this tragedy either. Yeah, and there, there's some further discussion of stuff like that in the next chapter, but everybody, that there seems to be some pretty broad agreement that it wouldn't have changed anything to kill the one and Ander, and there wasn't much point defying the order because they definitely, somebody would have gotten killed anyway. Well, not exactly. It's basically because she goes down a list of possibilities and she thinks, well, if Orn refuses Anna and or Miadna Io's order, I like then that segment of one esque probably shoots Orn for refusing an order and then shoots all the people on Anna and or Miadna Io's order. And that's that. Orn couldn't have done much. She she just would have gotten killed. And Skyat basically makes that point. She says, if you're going to do something that crazy, save it for when it will make a difference. But Esk, thinking about this, thinks, well, that segment was disconnected. It had control of itself at that time, and it was upset, and it didn't know what was going on, and there were a lot of questions, and it didn't want to kill all those people. Or she didn't want to kill all those people, I ought to say. So if that... If that segment of Esk had decided, I'm just going to refuse the order and I'm not going to let an Ender get all those people killed, maybe things could have actually gone a little bit differently. Certainly, an Ender still has the technical authority, but an Ender would have had to wait for other people to come and carry out her orders. Maybe she would have reconsidered her orders. Things could have gone different. And if Esk shoots an Ender Miadna Ai instead, then everything's very different. Because then Orn and Esk are now, like, hideouts from the law and... Probably the Justice of Torrin is going to get decommissioned. Maybe those people would have survived, but it would have been at the cost of Orn's whole career and Esk's existence. Esk, by the way, notes that she doesn't have an instinct towards self-preservation because of being an ancillary, that the Justice of Torrin and herself don't care if they die, which I struggle to buy is still true, but was maybe true yeah, at the time. I, I feel like one Esk... I feel like the ancillary protagonist has put a lot of effort into this plan and to for for not having that. I'm yeah. still not it, it still um, is not clear what it's appropriate to refer a, to the present day post JOT ancillary as. So there is something that comes up, I can't remember where exactly, but there's a discussion of one esque would be just like decommissioned and replaced with two esque or something like that. It it was a line that made it that made me think, oh, one esk just means the first esk unit, and esk units are the ancillary units of justice ships, which makes sense because if you'll remember from that early chapter where we get a discussion of the religious words, esk means beginning, and the ancillaries are sent mm. down before anyone else is. So I think it's almost definitely accurate to call the ancillary protagonist in the present esque though she might not be one esque she might have been part of you know a, a different esque unit okay let's just go with esque until unless unless yeah. and until we find something more appropriate yeah so anyway 
sky at Norn, say it doesn't make any sense, ask muses about things, and wonders if things could have gone differently, and that takes us into chapter 11. So we return to the present after Esk explained for her reasons for ki- wanting to kill Anna Ander. We, as an audience, do not get to hear what those reasons are, but the framing kind of suggests to me that it's basically what happened on Shisana is a big part of her reasons for wanting to kill Anna Ander, but we just haven't hit the end of that story. It's, it's kind of reminding me of use of weapons in that way, because there is a part where, if I remember correctly, Zakalway, like, tells the story of his past but we get that before we've heard yeah. all of it this is i'm i like this um and i'm now that you bring it up i'm i really appreciate the comparison to the use of weapon structure even if it's not quite running the same way but the two lines no waiting past and present mm-hmm. approach is a really good way to exposit this yeah so anyway Eventually, this is going to convince Stragan to give her the gun. It helps a lot to tell her the truth, and eventually Stragan's going to concede this. We see Cyberdan recovering from her drug addiction and generally seeming to be doing better, but Stragan is really pessimistic about it. She believes that Stragan is pretty much always going to be a liability, or at least in the foreseeable future, her addiction is going to mean that as soon as she gets a chance to, she's just going to try to get back on Kef rather than being of any help. Esk explains that her plan for killing Anander is pretty simple. She's going to go to a provincial palace, claim to be a non-citizen, ask for an audience with Anander Miatnaai, and use the concealed gun to murder her as soon as she gets in the same room with her. And with Strigan saying that that's not really a very good plan, and Esk saying that it, she doesn't need a complicated plan, they all kind of part ways. Dragan leaves to return home, with Esk kind of thinking that that's a terrible idea, because people might be looking for you, and Esk leaves to enact her plan, taking Cyberton with her against Anne's advice. Indeed. The, well, I, I'm kind of, I don't have a, a lot of sympathy for Cyberton at this point. Nobody does, but... I mean, yeah, there's trauma, but at at the point where you're stealing shit to cover a habit, my sympathy evaporates abruptly, regardless of whatever else you may think I think in that regard. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think Cyberden is like a good friend right now, you know? And Cyberden has done terrible things in her past and has done terrible things like in her recent past. Also, presumably, she ended up face down in the snow, injured somehow and it probably you know not not to blame the victim but like it probably wasn't for no reason she probably did something that made people want to beat her up but esk clearly has a view of this that is based on the society she comes from to a certain degree she she basically her her description says that it's impossible to be an addict on a station because on a station they can perfectly observe you and they know if you're doing that on a planet you could maybe get addicted but the consequences are pretty severe and they will just like send you off to another mission where you can't do that where where, like you won't be able to maintain your habit and usually you'll be socially shamed about it as well and so I think the cultural context she's coming from is making her think, well, if this was allowed to happen to Stragan, it's because, sorry, if this was allowed to happen to Cyberden, it's because society failed her. And to a very large degree, even if you don't think it's society's responsibility specifically to prevent its members from getting a drug addiction, society did fail Cyberden, you know? Ragi society placed such enormous expectations of success upon uh, Strigan, uh Man, I keep doing that. Such enormous expectations of success upon Cyberden and made it so clear that sh- anything that she did to get help psychologically would be viewed as weakness that Cyberden was caught in a double bind effectively where she just couldn't re-enter society in any socially approved way and that led her to a situation where she had nothing that could give her a sense of value or fulfillment and that led her to her drug problem right now admittedly Esk didn't know any of that when she decided to save Cyberden. We know it's true now because of what we learned like two chapters ago. I think Esk just wants to help Cyberdan because Cyberdan is a link to Esk's past and 
esque is, you know, not quite nostalgic, but like has very complicated feelings about that time in her life. So I think that's what first motivated her. But now there's also other yeah. stuff motivating her. Plus, Cyberton is doing relatively well. Like I said, they, they keep doing better and better. They, they are looking after themselves better now. They're wearing warm clothes when they go out. They're getting food both for themselves and for others, right? They're, they're shaping up a bit. It's, well, as pointed out diegetically, it's an open question whether, the, whether that will last. Although I'm, I think I commented on this in the first two episodes when Kef was discussed but I'm kind of at a loss as to the appeal. Uh-huh. Like, Kef seems strictly less... I less A universe that contains heroin has no reason for Kef to exist. I disagree. I think they're serving very different purposes, right? Because there is the popular idea, right, of drinking to forget your sorrows, right? And that's in some ways can be effective, right? Like if you get sufficiently unable to think about anything, you won't be thinking about your sorrows possibly. But what Kef is supposed to be doing is dulling your emotions, right? You don't feel any emotional states. So if the if all the emotional states you're experiencing are negative, then Kef has an obvious appeal. Also, if you see yourself as valuable only because you are able to, like, work or do some practical thing, then Kef could have a similar appeal to, like, Adderall, you know, or, or other stimulants, right? You're not going to get distracted with your feelings. You're not going to be wanting complicated things you're not gonna feel anything so you'll just be able to do what you think is Hmm. necessary i can sort of follow that so like kef is kind of and also like relating to the to the rachai psychological ideals kef seems like specifically something that would boost your steadiness in terms of the rachai idea of steadiness because what they see as valuable and morally virtuous is people who don't crack under pressure. And if you're not feeling any emotions when you're doing terrible things or intensely stressful things, then you're not going to crack. I guess, right? but Kef is, at least as demonstrated by Cyverden's, by our initial meeting with Cyverden and the, the scenes after, it's not like it suppresses uh-huh. competing motivations. It's like it suppresses motivation entirely. Well, oh, but we see so little of what Cyber... We, we have not seen Cyberdan actually on Kef. We have seen Cyberdan in Kef withdrawal. And admittedly, one of the first things we hear about Kef is the protagonist downplaying it, saying, some people believe without emotions they'll be enlightened or dispassionately logical, but it doesn't work that way, right? So it's more complicated than that. And it might just be that, like it suppresses some kinds of emotions or it doesn't maybe it's exactly what you're saying right like it just makes you useless it just makes you not feel any of the things that would motivate you so maybe you'll continue on rote behavior but you won't actually be able to pursue anything new or creative or thoughtful and that's like a massive downside that people don't necessarily notice but most of the, like, practical discussion we've seen has been about how it has kind of the standard drug downsides, right? Like, it, you build up an addiction, you build up diminishing returns, you need more and more of it, yeah, but... it gets more and more painful to be without it, that kind of thing. And with that, it Fair could point. just as well be heroin. We also get a quote in this chapter. Esk says, Virtue is not a solitary, uncomplicated thing. Good necessitates evil, and the two sides of that disc are not always clearly marked. Virtues may be made to serve whatever ends profit you, yet they exist and may influence your actions, your choices. Which is interesting, right? I think what they are getting at here, what what Esk is getting at here is, like, 
a view of morality in which it is a construct of institutional powers, right? More, uh, yeah, this is something that we had talked about in Matter, right? Because Hulse and Furban, like, question, hey, are morals basically just a tool of monarchist oppression basically yeah, right and because of their different social positions they had different virtues applying to them and they were both kind of aware of that yeah and by the end Hulse ends up thinking like oh yeah morality might have been invented for bad purposes but that doesn't mean you can't respect what it is and try to live a virtuous life but Esk here basically seems to be saying, oh yeah, morality is just another tool by which the Ragi carve out lines that let them oppress people, right? That if they condemn you as evil based on a standard that they are the ones who control and produce, that is another reason that they can do whatever bad shit they wanted to do with you yeah, for whatever but the reason. Ragi, that's... I'm looking for words here. <clears throat> no, go for it. Raj is a 500-pound gorilla. It sleeps wherever the hell it wants. They don't need the excuse, so that's not sufficient to explain mm -hmm. it. See, I think you're wrong there, and I think it's importantly true, and I think it's what this... I think it's part of what this text is trying to get out, that people think the Ragi don't need an excuse. People explicitly say it, you know, the when that woman comes around from the uh, from Ors and talks to Lieutenant Orn about why about the stash of guns, she says, in a way, I can trust you to not make up justifications because you don't need justifications. You if you wanted to kill us, you just would. Right. And nominally, according to the standards that have been set out by and that certain people re in that flashback really seem to respect and take seriously that woman is wrong right the people here are citizens they can't be randomly killed they have the protection of law and of due process and you know things of that nature but then we pretty quickly see as soon as they want to manufacture a reason to get the Tanmen killed, they can't. Okay, maybe that's not what, what happened. We don't know that that's what happened, right? But pretty quickly, the distinction between citizen and non-citizen fell apart as soon as there was another dividing line to draw. I think the, the Rajai Empire does need excuses in order to maintain that feeling uh, that the citizens have of, oh no, I'm on the right side and I, this is never going to actually harm me because every single time an act of genocide or just oppression is undertaken, it's against people who were somehow uniquely in the wrong and worthy of what was done to them. That's true. That is kind of alluded to with the destruction of Garcidae. Ask specifically says that was the first time that there mm -hmm. couldn't end up, there couldn't eventually be a utilitarian justification for the initial brutality. Hmm. Yeah. I'll have to think about that one. So yeah, at one point during, in like chapter 10, Esk is asked a complicated question about what she would have done if she was the one making the choice in the temple rather than Orn. Which is itself interesting, right? Because it implies it wasn't her choice, that she had to follow orders, but Orn didn't. Which, based on what she thinks later, wasn't true. But the way that Esk answers is divine, I am not a person. Which is an, a, a weird answer to a weird question. Because it is a non sequitur unless the implication that the distinction these people draw between what is a person and what is a non-person is that people can make choices whereas non-people are deterministic. And if that's what they think they're dividing across when they say that people, that, that like unmodified humans are people and Sillaries aren't people, then they are wrong about that because we know that the ancillaries aren't deterministic, not even when connected to the JOT. Their emotions affect what they do. So in, it's at least at in least that way, they're not. The JOT can suppress choices, can override or override them. Or, and, it, and it, yeah, it, it, the. Sure. So the, maybe the, that's the what she's trying have to imply. Emotions clearly, but they're not. What they don't have is final agency. 
because that can be overridden. Sure, but that time she did, right? Because she wasn't connected to the JOT. Maybe they are right in general to say that ancillaries can't always make choices, right? They don't have final say over what they do. But that distinction does seem to be breaking down yeah, a little in, in the specific in case of the suppressed like communications. This. At that point, one esque, one esque, one or whichever one esque was in the temple, definitely more of a person than usual, entirely a person. If hmm. and if and if there aren't, you know, additional if we're using those standards, there, yeah, it, yeah, and of course that's you know. Assuming that we buy that that's true, I think it's probably you. You could make a very reasonable argument that, like, well, they're still thinking beings, even if they're sometimes being controlled by something else, and they have the capacity to feel emotions and pain and stuff, and their thought processes are as complicated as any human. So it's probably that you probably should just consider them people anyway. But you know, in terms of what the people in this story think is going on with ancillaries, which is a common yeah. topic of it, it, unclearness. It doesn't seem like, and for, for reasons that are somewhat obvious, given how, given the degree of control in Rajai society, On and, and uh, Skyad at least don't seem the least bit aware of it. Yes. Of what's going on with ancillaries? Yeah, I think there's a lot of popular misconceptions. And I think this ties into what Skyat said in that previous section, where she was like, one of the advantages of empire, of living in an empire and being a beneficiary of its expansion and its systems, is that if you don't want to think about the people who have to suffer for your luxuries, you don't have to think about them, right? I think this is a result of them not really wanting to think very much about the possibility that ancillaries are thinking, suffering, or capable of suffering beings that Indeed. they are oppressing. Yeah, that, that's a good read. So in terms of other thoughts I had reading this, I like I said, I think One-Esque and the JOT were being tested for something on Shisana, and that's what Anna Ander wanted to do there, and that the result of that test was... It will eventually lead to the destruction of the JOT, because obviously the JOT, or at least Esk in the present, is disconnected from the JOT. Maybe it still exists, but something happened that caused some of the JOT's ancillaries to be disconnected from it. I think it was probably destroyed, and that's what Anna Ander actually wanted, but we don't really know yet. And also... Something that they get at multiple times here, and I think is going to be another theme, is individual action versus collective action, and how difficult it is to coordinate in systems where that are, like, really bad. Because the people within the Ragi often don't support specific things the Ragi are doing, right? They're not a monolith. They often take issue, especially those being asked to do a specific bad thing will take issue. The people among the Garcidae, the, the people who were being told to exterminate the Garcidae, a bunch of them took issue with what was going on, presumably, but only a few of them said something about it and said, like, you know, I refuse to carry out my orders. And those couple of people were just killed and the rest of them got on with it and followed their orders and buried their feelings. And this is like a, a classic coordination problem, right? It's these people all want to rise up. And if enough of them rise up and tr challenge the system, then the system will fall and fail. But they can't manage to rise up simultaneously because the punishment for being among the first of them to voice their discontent with the system leads to yes. them just personally and, uh, getting well, killed there, and nothing changing. Of historical examples of that. Oh, one chronological thing that I want to bring up because it seems to blur the line. Destruction of Garcidae is like a thousand years before the events of this book, right? Or before present, yes? Okay, so... I, I um, don't remember the exact timeline, but I think so, yes. The... Ask on Shisuna is very, very precise about separating I, Justice of Torin from I, one Ask one And unless I'm misremembering... Mm -hmm. Or at least, like, 
a couple times she will specifically point it out. She doesn't always. Sometimes she just says I generally. But there are several times where she will make a distinction because I, an individual-esque unit, or, se- yes, or segment like, rather, usually, was doing it, something different than I, the Justice of or a, dis- or a distinction's made on Shisuna. Uh, but here on Nilt, um, mm-hmm. that distinction is blurred entirely when Ask mentions having been at Garsed, even though the Gaunish ancillaries weren't made until quite a while after the destruction of Garsed. I think... I think Which, given the shared views memories, herself is not as having continuity with the Justice of Tor. Yeah, I think when she says, I was at Garsed, she means yes. I have memories that, that of being at Garsed because the JOT was at Garsed. But it's just interesting to see that distinction, which has yeah. otherwise been made pointedly uh, in the text several times, ignored here, perhaps because, well, it would be kind of a... It would be getting a bit into the weeds to explain that to Strigan, and in any case, she is probably aware of it to some extent. Hmm. I did also just want to say my... I'm worried because a bunch of this actually got said in the bonus episode, so I'm just repeating myself, but I do think now that Esk maybe doesn't have a plan to like blow up a big central computer system and kill Anand or Meatnai that way. I think she wants to kill some Anand or Meatnai and then through that, well, either she just ideologically believes it's important to act on your desire to destroy oppressive regimes even if you don't have a plan for coordination basically like you know i'm gonna act first and i'm gonna hope that and like it is just right to do this even if it doesn't fit into a larger plan or she thinks if i kill an and or and i that will show that the system is not invincible that the 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 structures of power that hold the ragi together can be damaged and showing that will indicate yeah, to that, people that so now is the time for a revolution part of it is just if you're one of the first handful of offenders then punishment is certain and awful and if you can cause enough local disruption to the functioning of raj then you mm-hmm. can reduce the probability of that punishment and the yeah you can you can reduce how likely that punishment is to be applied or their ability to carry it out and that would dramatically ease the coordination problem mhm and i mean we see i think it's in one of these chapters ime was an example of this right was one person basically stood up to corruption in the ragi to evil things being done and everyone just kind of sat on that and waited to see what would happen and what happens if you just sit on it and wait is the one person or the one ship which did that gets punished everyone who was involved in the Ime incident who like you know mutinied basically just gets killed right nothing nothing changed or was accomplished and so i think what she's i think what esk is getting at is like no we need more people to do this more often in order for things to change and we need bigger signals that now is the time that that's i agree that that's all i have to say about that not this one. This was a pretty so, short section. Else left for this episode? We already mentioned the the issue with the Presger, which definitely provides. Mm-hmm. Well, the Presger's explicit, somewhat hostility to Raj, coupled with their having dealt with an ancient enemy of Raj that is important to the establishment of this story. It, it's a, you know a, it's a liquid nitrogen sort of take that we're going to see more of the Presger. I'm really interested to learn about the society that can utterly intimidate Raj, but also is content to make them effectively the ambassadors of humanity. I would... I would predict that we're probably not going to see well, a yeah, whole yeah, ton more but, of the Presker until to do future the books. Just because... Yes, yes. But that, that would just be my guess, is they're being set up here, and they are important to the state of what's going on with the Ragi, like internal yeah, politics the, wise uh, but we're not going to get a resolution there or until fail for some interest some interesting reason is obviously the dominant arc here and we'll be getting significantly more 
I, I'm interested to see where Hans' right. well. arc goes from here, because I don't expect that the... I, I haven't even flipped to the first page of Chapter 12 yet, but I don't expect that the two-lines-no-waiting approach is going to be broken at this point, halfway into the book. Yeah, probably. I I expect we're going to see, like, the resolution of what exactly happened to with her, and then more about what happened in the future. I think we're basically going to see the whole backstory of why Esk has beef with Anna and Miatnai, and then we're going to see, you know, yes. her and, uh, uh, resolve that, that in some way. The, there are so many unanswered questions about that shooting in the temple, which definitely, from its inclusion at all, seems to be a factor here. But obviously the Justice of Torin still exists, so Esk's separation from it must post-date that event. Indeed. And it is just barely possible that the destruction of the Justice of Torin, the presumable destruction of the Justice of Torin, is somehow connected to the events that provoked this vendetta. Yeah, I did think for a minute, you know, when the, when the segments all got disconnected, I was like, oh, is this how the protagonist came to be in the state that she is, is this the, you know, all of them got disconnected, one of them got lost somehow or got permanently disconnected and there's going to be a missing ancillary who gets revealed to be the protagonist in the present, but yeah. no, they're all present so and accounted it's, for. It's, it's just possible, establishing that this can happen. It is possible that the Justice of Torin still exists, but the ancillary was not recovered. Esk could, be, could have been left behind somehow. Granted, that's unlikely unless something forced, say, forced the Justice of Torin to flee too quickly to recover it. But since Justices are troop ships and not battleships, well, they're probably not terribly equipped for that. And there aren't a lot of circumstances that would cause it. Indeed. All right. Well, in that case, join us next time, dear listeners, for chapters 12 through 15. Enjoy yourselves. It's later than you think. <laughs>